dear listener, welcome to another episode of 10 Laws with East Forest the Podcast. This week I have on Lauren Roche, which some of you may know as the author of the book The Radiant Sutras. And Lauren was someone that I ran into. And this is kind of the whole reason I wanted to start this podcast, because sometimes I just run into people that I didn't know before. And I'm like, hey, you know, you're amazing. Would you like to sit down for a second? And I'd like to to get to know you a little better and dig into your life. And so I met him at 1440 Multiversity when I was there doing uh, music for the Discovery Weekend and my first East Forest ceremony concert and a little bit more on that later. But he was just a super cool guy and we just got along really well right away and I enjoyed um, getting to talk to him that weekend. So it was after breakfast and we had a chance to sit down. We went over to a corner of the the dining hall there. And you're going to hear some background noise because of that. They actually were like vacuuming. And we asked them to stop vacuuming, which they did very kindly. But when we walked out, the guy, the guy, he gave us some stank guy. I don't know. I guess he really, really wanted to vacuum at that moment. But we we made him stop for about an hour. But thank you. Thank you, dude. Whoever, whoever you were, Mr. Vacuum Man. Um, I really appreciate that we were able to get some time to talk to to Lauren. And he's someone who teaches meditation. Uh, he also told me he may, mostly teaches the teachers of meditation. Like they come to him to tell him their dirty secrets or when they have problems, you know, or they're just kind of stuck in their practice. And that can be embarrassing for people who are teachers themselves in a sense. But it's great that they have people they can reach out to and for me, just his approach of sort of this instinctive personal meditation practice that was so simple, but yet so profound. It, was, it wasn't about pushing things away. It was really about inviting everything in. And I got him to do a short meditation in the podcast. It's uh, later on in the podcast, just like five minutes or so. But man, it was, it was like one of the best little short meditations I've ever had. And it really turned on its head my thinking about what meditation is and how it's something that it's not something that I strive for or have to push things away to achieve, but more about um, experience, you know, and my senses. And so I I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, it's funny because I just released a meditation last week the one for anxiety and it's already made me change my approach and maybe how I would even approach that. But, you know, at the end of the day, really just sitting down and taking a deep breath or a few deep breaths right there, that's it. There's not much more we need to do. It's just about just taking a moment to be present, just taking a moment just to be with ourselves. So I don't want to slag on different approaches or even what I've done in the past. It's all good. It's all good. So Lauren, I asked him about the Radiant Sutras, and these are he mentioned um, a couple of them that were his favorites, and he translated these from Sanskrit. And I believe it took him something like 27 years he's been working on this project. Um, but if you're familiar with Rumi or the Tao Te Ching, this sort of stuff will be uh, right up your alley. So let me read you number 26 of the Radiant Sutras. And there are different versions of this. He gave me a little book here. This one's from 2008, so it might be the second or third. But anyway, here it goes. The one who is at play everywhere says, There is a space in the heart where everything meets. 
Come here if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all is here. Are you here? Enter the bowl of vastness that is your heart. Listen to the song that is always resonating. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is here. And a steady regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. You who are the embodiment of blessing, once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return. Again and again, answer that call and be saturated with knowing I belong here. I am home. So, pretty sweet stuff, you know, and a lot of nuance in just the, uh, the word choices and what that brings. Uh, one thing I want to read you from his website, I thought this was kind of fitting to describe Lauren's approach to meditation. This is from uh, his site, laurenroche.com. Meditation can feel like it comes as a gift from the outside, from the lineage of monks, gurus, and sages over the millennia. You become their servant and seek to kill off anything in you that does not fit into the aura of a meditation ashram, where the ideal is to be celibate and detached from it all. I've done this type of meditation and loved it, but it is for people who don't mind being dominated by dead Asian males. (laughs) So he's got a sense of humor, and that's what we like about him. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so uh, hey, I'm going to be on the road, Rockwood Music Hall. July 18th, New York City, June 22nd through 24th at the Groove Festival in Ontario, Canada, August in Portland, and also August in Detroit, and September 27th through 30th is the Boulder Mountain Guest Ranch where I'll be doing the East Forest Retreat, so please, uh, we have a couple spots left for that, and it's magic. Come join us. All that's at eastforest.org. You can send your questions, you can send your comments, and you can send your PayPal money to info at eastforest.org. Might read some of those questions and answers on the air. And uh, I have more ceremony gigs coming up. The one I did at 1440 was really amazing and pretty profound. I want to thank them for having the vision to let me try that. We had a full room, probably about 150 people in the round. And uh, I was really just, it just felt right, you know, merging these ceremonial elements that is what started for East Forest and still a big part of my project and bringing in these concert elements and bringing it all into this big sound meditation soup that was uh, just beautiful. And it felt like it was really something alchemical and something that helped people transform in the moment. How did someone describe it? I think Scott, who runs 1440, I heard said something like, uh, oh God, I'm gonna get it wrong, but like a a modern fairy tale for, no, no, uh, a modern lullaby for adults or something like that. So I think we're trying to, we're getting, we're getting really good and getting closer and closer and there's going to be more of those coming up. And if you're interested in trying to host one, let us know. Same, uh, same email address. So this is Lauren Roche. Enjoy the conversation. Twenty-seven years working on one project. I can't quite imagine spending twenty-seven years 
on one work of music, mostly because I would be afraid that I would think about it too hard, in a way. It reminds me of uh, Guns N' Roses' Chinese Democracy, an album they worked on for decades. It was, became lore in the music industry. Uh, they eventually released it, but it was sort of like a, a bit of a pile of garbage because there was too much behind it. I mean, that must be an incredible meditation in itself to work on something that long. It would have to become a malleable form that... Well, what's that process like? Well, the text called to me. You know, I have a mysterious relationship with this text. It's called the Vinyana Bhairava Tantra. And it's a classical yoga meditation text that seems to have emerged around 800 AD in Kashmir. And before that, it may have been in the oral tradition for centuries. Mm-hmm. We don't know. And the text describes or mentions 112 what it calls doorways to ecstasy. And it does use the word for meditation a few times. And it uses the word yoga or yukti, these techniques for unifying, techniques for being one with the soul, or portals. Is it using those terms interchangeably, meditation, with different, ecstasy? With little nuances, yeah. Huh. <clears throat> There's nuances, because sometimes the portal is terror or fear or grief or anger or lust. The text basically describes it within a human body, within ordinary human experience. There's at least 112 doorways to unifying with yourself. Mm-hmm. And meditation is presented as the meeting ground of spirit and flesh. Meditation and, is presented as the meeting ground of spirit and flesh, yes. And the secrets are all right here, mm-hmm. inside of everything that bothers you, inside of everything that you yearn for, all your heartaches, your yearning, your deepest impulses. The the urge to merge with the soul is the most powerful impulse in a human being. It's unstoppable. And meditation is giving in to that urge. And there's a richness to experience where tasting food, listening to music, dancing, being alone in nature mm-hmm. under a dark sky, mm-hmm. like animals howling, mm-hmm. or with a crowd of friends just immersed in love, like overwhelmed with happiness, or just simply breathing, or just simply noticing the play, the way that gravity is playing through your body. These are all doorways. And these are all things that are engendering presence. They're all here all the time. Mm -hmm. So the text, which is a duet, part of what I love about the text, is a duet between the goddess, who's the energy, who's the life force, who's the dynamic energy of creation, 
and her lover, who is consciousness. So it's a counterpoint melody. Are you familiar with that? The idea of like a duet, a melody that's in sort of a, a sort of an equilibrium to the melodies. It's called counterpoint. Yeah, uh, I like it. Opposite act reactions, but it's not opposite in a sense. But there's a playfulness to that. There's complete playfulness, and the goddess begins the text, and she inhabits the body of wonder. She, <clears throat> she's like in a body, saying, "What is this universe we find ourselves born into, and what are these energies streaming through my body?" Mm-hmm. And in the text, she's Devi, or Bhairavi, or Parvati, and he's Bhairava, or Shiva. And so he replies, he, she invokes him, and then the text ends with her speaking. They go back and forth, and the language is playful. So there's no known author. No. This was the tradition of the time. The, the composers attributed the text to, to the song of life resonating in their hearts. And this is the song of, that life is whispering to us. How is there a known definitive text? Was, cause there isn't. There's debates. There's, the scholars will... Um, they'll say, well, this one particular version of the text... Right. is the best, but there's variations. It's, un, it's, it's no way to know, right? So in some ways, is it um, a bit of a myth or a folk tale in a sense of super ancient form where it probably was told in different ways? There's a bit of a myth or folk tale because it's from the oral tradition. Right. Now, even that, the, everything in the meditation traditions in yoga and Sanskrit has been debated vigorously Right. For 2,500 years. As our most religious anything text. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes with great vehemence. Oh, yeah. And, and in academic circles, great bitterness and envy. Yeah. Well, that's also like the play of the mind. A, a lot of like um, Orthodox Judaism is about sort of that intellectual argument. And, you know, sitting there and, and going over these arguments of the, yeah. the text, the text, the text. And yeah. And get the, lost. And the, um, the Buddhists yep. embrace the tantras. And this whole lineage almost went extinct in India, in Kashmir. <clears throat> but the Buddhists took the text to Nepal and Tibet and they they cherish the the tantras and the so there's been a play a debate between the buddhists and the yogis for thousands of years and it sharpened them both up mm-hmm. so what was the process like for you to you've done multiple versions of this why I don't know. I mean, it's a love affair, really. Um, I started meditating in a science lab at the University of California in 1968. I didn't know that I was meditating. How did you even end up there? It, I was an 
I was a freshman at UC Irvine, the newest University of California campus. And there's this giant campus. It was huge and empty. There was, it was built to hold eventually like 35,000 students. And at the time, when I got there, it had 2,200. Mm-hmm. So we had these gorgeous buildings, this huge park in the middle, beautiful, and hardly any students because it was new. <clears throat> and the, uh, I think it was this first chancellor, Dean Aldrich, who put out the word around the world, said, come here and reinvent education. And Aldrich, who was the, not just the first chancellor of UC Irvine, but he sort of helped oversee building it. Mm. Like the Irvine company didn't want black people or Jews to be able to live around the UCI property that I've heard. And he said, okay, no deal then. We'll take, we'll take our campus elsewhere. And it's just, yeah, this is huge. Right. The Irvine, it was just all cow pastures. There's just miles and miles. Hard to imagine. Yeah. Miles and miles and miles of emptiness. And the Irvine company there had brilliant um, geoeconomic engineering. They thought we put a University of California campus there, then there'll be a technology park from, there'll be a whole mini right, Silicon right. Valley. And then there'll be all this housing. It was like the centerpiece. And they said, so, you know, somewhere, it's the, the story is that there's like somewhere there's this dotted line of here, just sign this. And it says, oh, by the way, there'll be no blacks or Jews allowed on yeah. campus housing. Redlining in some communities. And he just, no. Yeah. Like, like risking everything. If he had said no and they'd, I mean, it could have been a war. And his whole career was about founding this place. So his same vision involved something to do with meditation at that mm, time. Well, not exactly. He said we brought. He set out the call throughout yeah. throughout the professor world. Said, "Come here and reinvent education." So when I got to Irvine, like this, this a know nothing teenager, like I was a loner surfer. You grew up on the beaches, essentially, with your parents. Yeah, parents were surfers. I was working California. my way through college, mowing the golf course lawn at Irvine Coast Country Club. Nice. <laughs> so I, where, where you have to, um, you have to be there a couple hours before first light because you, you have to have mowed the first nine greens That's a by job. first light. Yeah. You, have to, you have to, you groom the greens because right. they're groomed every day. Very, very fine. Because it's for putting. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to have the first nine holes groomed by first light because as soon as there's a little bit of light in the air, there's four. So, yeah, I was just like this dumb kid, not social, just loner. I'd be out there. I'm at home in the ocean. And... Um, they made it like a law that you had to participate in experiments. Really? You had to as part of a course requirement because they were desperate. <laughs> what kind of other experiments were going on? That, I, mean, I don't even know. God knows. But you had to, though. Wait, what year was this? 1968. So LSD experiments were going on before that. 
there were other people were doing LSD experiments. Yeah, it's completely right legal. there next yeah. door. You you didn't get into those. But I was such a loner. I hadn't heard of LSD. I was aware of marijuana because I'd seen by 1968, just even as a dumb teenager, I had seen all kinds of people crash and burn. Sure, and surfer culture too. Yeah, and I used to um, sneak into jazz nightclubs when I was 16, 17 in L.A. And um, the musicians would go backstage and come out completely lit. Did you see any uh, big names back in the day, 68? Um, West Coast jazz with Chorus Silver? Well, one day... I was sitting at a table with a bunch of black people, these black musicians. They were so friendly. It was like, kid. They were just like, hey, kid, good to see you. It's like, they're you're highly like entertained. 16? I was 16. Yeah. They're highly entertained that there's this 16-year-old white boy. Like, I wore, um, like, a Blues Brothers suit. I had, like, an almost black suit. I looked completely sharp. <laughs> nice. No, this how, you dress the part. That's, you have, if you're going to sneak into right. a nightclub and the bartender, like, in a tenth of a second, because kids underage, but you have to complete, be impeccable. So I'd order the vodka tonic and just, because you, you have to drink, that's how they paid for the band. Minimum. minimum yeah. yeah. And um, just like be impeccable. So I'm, I'm sitting at this table for some reason, it was like the only table or something. So I'm, this whole quartet, they go up on stage to play and they're, um, and, um, the guy sitting there, there's one white guy sitting next to me. And uh, he, he turns to me and he goes, hi, how are you? And, you know, and introduces himself. He says, I'm George Shearing. <laughs> <laughs> and he invited me over to his house and he and his wife really? entertained me. They, he put on, he, he went over to the record player and put on, because he has the most incredible sound system. Like like the the most expensive record player and right. twenty thousand dollars speakers, yeah. yeah. And he was one of the most conscious people I've ever seen. When when George Shearing, people who don't know, he's a famous jazz pianist, and he's blind. When he he looked at me and it could, it felt like the sun was shining. It felt like quiet scanned. heat, scan being scanned. With warm, loving interest, like, wow. like, like childlike, it would be as if a cat walks up to you, friendly, like meow, like it was this friendly, warm, loving. So, yeah, I guess I met different guys, in, but mostly just hearing. I did. So, I was too young and stupid. Yeah, but that is interesting to me. I mean. Even at 16, you had a predilection for for music in a different way than maybe your average kids in your in your scene, <clears throat> and that's interesting to me how that might play into music in general as an interest of yours in these translations you've made and how you see it with language. And well, I have a hunch that being exposed to jazz taught me something fundamental about meditation. Yes. What's that? Improvisation. Mm-hmm. And year, years later, like I've I spent a lot of the last 40, 50 years listening to meditators, kind of being like what a sports therapist is, like a, like a sports doctor 
or physical therapist is for athletes. I do that for meditation teachers and and long-term meditators. What do you mean, like listening to their voice? No, like people, meditation teachers of all traditions sometimes come to me when they're stuck. Like as, a, as for their practice? Yeah, or? like they can just, because they yeah. can talk to me and, and I'll never tell. Um, I'll tell the story anonymized. Uh, you know, change tradition and even change city and change race and gender. So, so they don't, you can change planet, huh? it's all good Yeah, but they'll say, you know, like, meditation's not working for me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'll listen, because I'll listen to another meditation teacher for two hours. Just tell me their, your story. Like, when did you start? It's your meditation fixer. Yeah. So one of the things I discovered, and it was wild, um, like, I started doing this most a lot when I was 26, after teaching meditation for about seven years. And I discovered that a lot of meditation teachers and long-term meditators were doing the technique mechanically. Like very hierarchical about a system, this is my process. Like a player piano, plunk, 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 plunk. And there's no space for the silence to emerge. Right. They wouldn't let the silence that they're already in occur to them. They're, they're just mechanically, with a slight bit of force, they never let the feeling of the music take them over and, improvisation. and, and play. Mm-hmm. Like when you're learning something, maybe you're going plunk, 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 plunk. Maybe you're scowling at the music sheet right. and plunking along. But after that, after your muscle memory has learned the movement, you have to learn how to surrender. You forget it. Yeah. Yeah. They never got to that forgetting the technique. Because in meditation, the movement is internal. So the things that people do with external skills, like dancing or playing music, they don't get to the surrender part. So. That's tricky. I never, like, I was astounded to realize how all these people are meditating and teaching meditation, and they've never actually had any coaching. Well, you were saying something earlier about, in some ways, that the natural aptitude of people to meditate, quote-unquote, who have zero, don't even know maybe they're meditating, yeah. versus the ones that are experts. So perhaps it's almost like, um, I've often thought this about certain artistic pursuits, like uh, if you have too much training, it's a bit of a trap. It's like shackles in a sense. It's too much in your mind. Uh, like I had a lot of training in singing and I just overthink it to this day where it's just it's a real problem. And certain things in my life I have almost no training in. And I purposely avoid, I like experiential <coughs> training, like being with people who I really respect and I learn a lot and I learn by doing. But sometimes if I'm given a method, I find it can be a trap for my mind. I get it's, stuck inside its walls. Yeah. That's well put, and I think that's like an epidemic in the field of yoga and meditation. Tell me more about that. Well, the well, all I care about is that people learn to meditate in their own way. That's my passion. It's been my um, my passion for half a century. God help me. Like I just love meditation so much, and. You can see when meditation is working for somebody. 
It's like they're in love. Well, how would you define meditation for you? Being in love with the life force. So that can happen a lot of ways, right? It, a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So just observing the world and meeting people, I think that there's meditators everywhere. Like there's a bird watcher out there. You know, just, you, we might think, what a geek. He's sitting there with his binoculars and like a little notebook. Like I saw this bird. Yep. Like who cares? But what are they doing? They're becoming at one with the forest. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they have their tool, their binoculars. But there might be half an hour where they're just being there, blending into the forest, and then like waiting for this bird to like appear and it alert in all directions for little sounds, little bird songs, little glimpse of a feather. <clears throat> the fisherman just waiting to catch a fish, the surfer sitting there looking at the horizon. Well, Lauren, let me ask you a question then. Would you say something that ties together the quality of meditation is concentration? Or about is it, is there Bad a level word. Of focus? It's a terrible word. So what, what would you call that sense of there's a, there's a point when he's looking for the bird or waiting for the wave, there's a point of uh, that focused awareness. How would you, what would you call this it? This is the big illusion in the field of yoga and meditation. Uh, Trevor was making a squeezing motion with his hands, like he was bringing his hands close together, saying focus. Like, so he was, Pressure. <laughs> so he's pressing his hands together, and he stopped when they're about three inches apart. Everyone thinks by default that meditation is squeezing your attention down. And so, in other words, the standard expectation of meditation, it's exactly like sitting in your cubicle at work. Sit still, look straight ahead, and concentrate on a little tiny screen. But it's even more boring than sitting in your cubicle because the screen is supposed to be blank. Right. So, Which in other words, is sort of impossible in a it's sense. It's impossible. Right? And so everyone's frustrated. <clears throat> just, I just hear from them people constantly. And then they get to be at war with their own minds. My damn mind won't stop or thinking. Your ego, quote unquote. Your ego. Yeah. And this, this entire scheme is a disease. I mean, the whole system of thought, it's, it's like an IKEA assembly manual made by somebody who's never assembled an IKEA bookshelf. It's like What's you try it. Regurgitation of like... Yeah, the parts that they're describing in the little IKEA chart aren't, they don't exist. Right, and they're missing a tool. <laughs> yeah, and you're missing a tool. <laughs> they didn't give you the right Allen wrench. And, yeah. and these aren't, the shelf doesn't look that way. Yeah. People don't have an ego. The ego just means the sense of I. It's I am. And the special case of ego, the way that it's used in 12-step programs, is a disease. And the word ego should not be used as a disease concept, except for people who are addicts. Then it's useful. If they go through a death process, they want to separate from their addict persona and develop a new... But well, they have to pe- give themselves over to, quote, a higher power, yeah. they, which is a whole nother... But thing. unless you're an addict with a diseased ego, you don't amputate. The, that all comes from religious brainwashing, which is what AA was founded on. And, and by definition, that you can't, quote, control yourself, so you have to give yourself over to something other. 
Yeah. I so, believe that's the first uh, AA step. is a profound program, all the 12-step programs, and it's, it's based on the model of religious conversion and a lot of LSD, apparently. What? It's based uh, on... I think Bill Wilson, the guy who founded AA, one of the main founders, was taking LSD, oh, really helped. I've heard that AA, or 12-step in general, I mean, their success rate is low. Under ten percent. Now, don't quote me on that. But yeah, it's it's like it's a bit of a, a scheme. I mean, most not that I want to get too deep down into the recovery thing, but I'm I'm more interested in this idea that you said about ego and meditation. And uh, well, ego is one of those words that's bandied around <clears throat> a lot. But it's the sense of self. Look, look at the dictionary definition of ego, and it's the sense of I am and I am that sense that is the the primary mantra so it's a right what, so what's happening here is that ideas that are exclusively for monastics people who are living in a religious community and go through a death rebirth it's like they shave their head they give up their name they give away all their money um, often they would take a vow of celibacy. Right, they give it all up. That's the monastic path. And on that path, they actually try to kill their ego. They actually have a funeral for the ego and actually bury it and become a new person like Swami, blah, 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 Ananda. And then AA brilliantly took this technology of religious conversion and applied it for addicts. And I... Um, I've heard those statistics, but I, I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends who are um, in AA. It works for them. And it's worked for them. It's a yeah, profound I, I, program. Yeah, so let's not talk about the statistics, but the issue of ego, the, using ego as a negative term, it's like what antibiotics are in medicine. It's antibiotic means anti-life. And antibiotics are profound. They can save your life. But, but you, don't just, days, you don't just eat antibiotics. Right, and so is the term ego bandied around in the wellness community, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, it's meditation. a mistake. And, and it's a tool of manipulation. Usually the people who are really banding the term ego, they're egomaniacs. And by getting everybody else to weaken their ego, it makes them easier to control and manipulate. I think you hit it on the head as far as the commercialization of the yoga community and, and sort of the scene that's been emerging. It's so heavily dominated by ego. Well, it has to be. I mean, we need to be a star, to walk into a room as a musician or a singer or a, a band yeah. or... Anything you've got to have ego. You put on a show, right? You're there to hold focus and attention. And so ego is beautiful, and and people pay a price for being a performer. Like um, if you're a yoga superstar and you have that charisma, you also pay a price for it. But it's a beautiful thing when someone has like the ego is like. Listen to me, I know what I'm doing. I'm a representative of this thousand, multi-thousand year old tradition. And here, 
and I give myself the authority to modify these yoga poses and, and like play downtown funk while we're doing pranayama. So the authority uh, is also sort of a sort of kind of self-confidence to own what actually is happening. To own what's happening. Tell a different story at the same time. You've got to own what's happening and take responsibility for it. So ego is beautiful. In Sanskrit, ego is aham. Mm-hmm. I am. It's, it's a beautiful mantra. So what's going on here is that we in the West, we are absorbing, we're inheriting these many thousands of lineages of yoga and meditation as fast as we can. And these technologies are completely mainstream for years and years, over 20, 20 to 30 or 40 million just in America been practicing yoga and meditation. It's completely mainstream. But the traditions in the past were monastic. Like think, before 100 years ago, where were, how many women yoga teachers were there? Right. Before 100 years ago, how many women gurus were there? In any tradition. Next to none. So we haven't even heard from women and the women that are teachers are teaching in a tradition that's been purely masculine for 2,000 years or more. And not only just ordinary masculine, it's men who don't like women. Do you think, What's a monk? Right. Uh, one that's given up their masculinity yeah. in a sense. Men who don't like women, don't like dance, don't like music. It says, I'm going to go off to my cave. Leave me alone. Boring. So we're all using their thought forms. The thoughts we think in about meditation are thought forms that were developed for a different people in a different time and place. And frankly, I think that the meditation masters of the past would be insulted to see their technology kind of misappropriated by imitation. The whole idea of yoga and meditation is that you invent it live for that person's body. The Buddha talked about this a lot, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Buddha, in this famous sermon, I forget the name of it, he said, monks, I've given you 84,000 different dharma doors for all the different kinds of people there are. The whole idea of yoga and meditation is to d- develop it to be appropriate for the, the bodies of the people who are there. So that's a very personal process. Yeah. And it's... it's the bird watcher. Yeah. Right? Uh, the surfer waiting for the wave. You're kind of opening up this idea of meditation to become something that is much, much broader. Everybody has a piece of the mystery. Musicians, I hung out with musicians as they rock out to the Radiant Sutras. Like, they know stuff that nobody else knows. Meditation teachers don't know. They know they have secrets. And I know that they, even though I've been listening to mantras for 50 years, I can see them go deeper than I do. And maybe it's something that isn't spoken through a word anyway. It's like the the way all that music fits together is is more evocative of of that thing that they're trying to express. And And dancers know things that nobody else knows. So art in general. And artists, painters, mm-hmm. and sculptors, and, and poets, and uh, women, women nourishing babies. 
have experiences, and probably the babies too, have experiences that none of us have access to. It. Yeah. Yeah. I went to. A- I went. One day I swung by. I have three sisters, an older sister and two younger sisters. One day I swung by to visit my sister, my younger sister, and. I forget why, but I was just there sitting in her living room and she's sitting over there on the sofa and I go, Danielle, you look like you've been meditating because she was glowing. She had a glow that you only see in people who've had a profound meditation experience. Just, it's like moonlight shining through their skin and filling the space all around them with a little bit of sun in it. So I said, she said, no, I didn't meditate. I said, but you're... You're luminous. Like, when did you wake up? And she goes, well, like I woke up at like three or something like that to feed the baby. She had like a six-month-old baby. Mm-hmm. And I sat right here, and it was summer. So the windows were open, and so I was feeding the baby, and I could, I could hear the sound all around. She lives in Santa Monica. And then I wanted to make sure the baby was asleep. So I just sat there, holding the baby, listening to the, the silent, the whisper of the wind in the trees, smelling the air. So she just sat there in communion, you know, gushing milk, holding a baby. Um, so she was in a pose, like, you know, an embrace, sitting up in this communion of love where her body you know turned into this nutrition nourishing love adoration communion and just sitting there being there from three to four in the morning if that's not meditation people that nothing is like who gives a shit what some some skinny monk in the himalayas is chanting om like Fine, that's great. I get that. But here's a woman. Different path, yeah. Here's a woman sitting there holding a baby. And anyone who doesn't understand that that's meditation is just not looking. They don't, like, they have eyes, but they're not seeing. They have ears, but they're not listening. There are people experiencing deep meditation all over the place dancers, singers. So the essence. Mommies, writers, poets. Um, people walking dogs. Yeah. So it's it's everywhere. Cooks, and everyone has a piece of the mystery. Like, and what the meditation traditions have codified these things, and so it's really useful. It can help you go deeper. And sometimes we want to expand our range, learn more tools. Like Danielle was experiencing baby mommy meditation. But, you know, babies change all day long every day. And they change from hour to hour. So it's mommies know these things about loving a baby and then letting it go to wander off into the world. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, But one big question I have is, one of the reasons that meditation is becoming such a thing and is seen is because it's a symptom of modernity and there's a hunger for it. And people are yearning for passageways 
into essentially de-stressing, peace. They feel overloaded. They're looking. That's They're one looking. of the reasons. Right. So what, what suggestion do you give uh, to cultivate this, this inherent skill you say that we all have or this ability that we have um, because obviously they need some direction. Otherwise, they wouldn't be yeah. looking. Well, everyone can meditate. It's instinct. It's an instinct. And to access your instincts, you can be down home and natural. So one of the first doorways into meditation is make it like your favorite things. Like if your favorite thing is eating chocolate, then maybe have a piece of chocolate and uh, just smell it. Just hold it under your nose and smell it and do just breathe, breathe with it for a couple of minutes and get the feeling that breath is nourishing and thrilling. Start to build the sense. And then expand, say, to other smells. Find, like, cinnamon, the forest, the... There's a name, I forget what it is, for the... After the rain. Thicken? Thicken? <laughs> there's a rain... There's yeah. a name for the smell that after a rain. Find out smells... Find exciting smells, soothing smells, nourishing smells. So is it about cultivating a feeling? Sensing the senses. Awareness of the sense? Sensing and feeling. to that. And pleasure. Yeah. So not a, it, just playing devil's advocate, it's not about emptiness for you. It's, a, it's about fullness or about uh, uh, there's a peacefulness? Well, there's nothing to be with with emptiness at first. So you it's sort um, of like infinity. There's something hard to attach to. Infinity. There's a rebound effect. Meditation is the land of opposites. So if you if you go for fullness, you'll rebound into emptiness. Like think about you're a musician. If you're if there's a fantastic set and everyone's drenched in sound, and then everybody stops, music stops. There's this reverberating silence. Yeah. So the Technically, usually in meditation, we set up a series of steps. And you can use any sense, smell, balance, motion, seeing, hearing, touch, inner touch. You'd set up, engage your awareness delightfully with any sense or multiple senses, with seeing light, with seeing the inner light, with hearing external music, we're hearing internal mantras with um, the strong movement of dancing and then subtle, subtle movement like micro dancing, micro motion. Engage your senses with any of these modalities seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, balancing, it's movement. A wakefulness. In a yeah, sense. Be awake to it. Yeah. And then follow the rhythm. Just, just keep explore what happens in your awareness, the play of your awareness and your senses. Sort of a modern vipassana in a sense. Like it's, yeah, it's a it's a very much a a listening is how I think of it in a way. When I hear that, I'm thinking about sound. Um, I'm thinking about hearing, paying attention. The not doing is sort of like the not um, applying any sort of structure it's highly structured but it's like like um 
there's a classical music aspect to it, where you set up, say, your favorite senses, and then follow the trail of your senses as they dissolve into the silence, into space. Silence being the absence of noise versus the absence of sound? Silence is both the absence of sound and also all sounds, because... Um, scientists tell us that everything's vibrating. So, and our hearts are always beating and our breath is flowing. So there's no stillness and there's no silence. Everything is continual motion and vibration. So we could think of what we call, quote, silence. I'm making air quotes. Is actually like a hum, the hum of creation. Mm-hmm. It's a different part of the wave. Yes. Yeah. So I think that teenagers in a rave on ecstasy dancing for six hours when they walk outside or the, the set ends, I think they ex- can experience real silence. There's just, there's, there's just vibration of peace. They like, are the reverberation of that experience. Yeah, that afterwards, yeah. there's this incredible reverberation. So a powerful meditation would be to rock out until every cell of your body is just going, is just in ecstasy. And then, say, lie down or just stand there, just stand there in silence. Everyone stand. We've, we've done this a lot. And it's amazing. One of my favorite things. And just the silence becomes a hum of being. So it's just experience in the end. What? You're going to kick yeah. this out? No, we just need to start back. It's okay. I know you're short on time. We can wrap it up. What? Why do we have to leave? They need a vacuum. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's, it's clean. There's nothing, there was no one in here. <laughs> well, look, before we end, I had one question for you. Um, do you think... It, 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 do you have a process for doing a guided meditation that's even five minutes that feels valuable for you? You know, that's something you can give to people and teach people? That's, that works with these sort of sense of just experience that you're talking about that's outside maybe the box of everything we're currently getting about, you know, do this, sit still, we're going to go through this process to meditate. Yeah, there are some. Now, understand everybody's different. So the, um, the first thing you could start with is I welcome all of who I am. Do you think we could do a little meditation? Okay. Because I would appreciate that. All right. So, if you want, you could op- like open your arms to the sky and say, I welcome all of who I am. Externally? Externally. And if you like, you could just inwardly take that attitude of welcoming. I welcome, I welcome, I welcome the rebel rocker in me. I welcome you know, the wild woman, the wild man. I welcome the the child in me, I welcome the old wise man, the old wise woman. I welcome the mother, the lover, the dancer, the artist, the musician. I welcome all the lonely, aching parts of me. I welcome the wise parts of me. I welcome the natural parts of me. I welcome all my senses. I welcome seeing and hearing, touch, balance, 
feeling, my interior senses. I welcome the flow of breath. I welcome the way the gravity is holding me to the earth. I welcome my freedom to move. I welcome all my instincts, hunting, exploring, making trails, homing, nesting, resting, bonding, mating, nurturing, forming bonds with friends, forming bonds with a lover. I welcome all the elements, air, space, fire, water, earth. And I welcome the rhythms that are continually flowing in my body and in my awareness. I welcome all the rhythms. I welcome the rhythms of life flowing in my blood, flowing in my breath, flowing in my brain waves, flowing in my heart. feels all about forgiveness and shame going away when you say those words. Like welcoming everything. What it means to be human and to be aware and, mm -hmm. and all the times I feel we're being asked to sort of push certain parts away like the ego or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And it's like it's all here. It's, it's all you. I love monks. I love them. I've never had a problem with the monk or a swami. But their path is different. Their path is denial. It's renouncing everything. They're called renunciates. They take vows of celibacy and poverty. And it's a mistake to think that if you adopt 
helter-skelter some of the technologies that were developed for monks that can improve your life as someone who lives in the world. It's, we're, this is a harder path to have an ego and live in the world yes. and have to deal with everything. Yes. It's more intricate. I don't, I don't blame anyone who wants to be celibate. Like, God bless you. But we're misappropriating these, these concepts and techniques and kind of medis- medications that were only for monks and nuns. Yeah. And it's poisonous. It's poisonous to take a medication that you don't, for an illness you don't have. <laughs> if you don't have an illness, like don't take the medication for that illness. And, and that's been what we're doing. So a life, what we're, the little thing we were doing with the welcoming is a life affirming. It's a meditation for people who live in the world. God bless. I could talk about this all day, but they're going to vacuum. We have to vacuum. I appreciate it. It's Um, a cleaning, the instinct, the nesting nesting instinct. And as you said, it looks clean. Um, And and there's a way in which during meditation, there's a vacuuming. The uncomfortableness of meditation (laughs) is because we're awake, but we're in a state of rest deeper than sleep. And so the body goes around vacuuming. (laughs) <laughs> that's one of the rhythms of meditation is there's this peacefulness and then all of a sudden because you're feeling your body cleansing itself well vacuums don't they make babies sleep or yeah <laughs> all right so how, it's like almost that we should continue for hours i know well maybe we'll talk again sometime yeah. but how can folks find you online um radiantsutras.com mm-hmm. or laurenroche.com i'm the only i'll put this in the show yeah notes. l-o-r i'm the only lauren roche in the world as far as i know so Okay. You just type Lauren Roche, just toss that at any browser of your choice, and there you go. Just speak it to Alexa, and there you are. Yeah. Hey, Alexa, find Lauren Roche. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Well, there it is. Thank you to Lauren Roche. Check him out. Check out his books. He's got some really cool stuff going on, and I'm confident I will see him again, and hopefully we'll get him back on the podcast. Uh, This music you're hearing in the background is a song called Second Attention. It's from my first record, The Education of the Individual Soul. And originally it was called Migration. And I still for some reason think that's what it's called. But the last minute I remember changing the title, Second Attention. And I don't really remember why. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I just really like the vibes of the tune. It's got some field recordings from Culebra, Puerto Rico some live bass guitar from a meat streaker. He's from Israel. And uh, yeah, I just want to share that with you. So see you see next week. Got some good stuff in line. Uh, hit us up, info at eastforest.org. And keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit, but if you do, do it with grace.